what would it be like to take a single photograph of the Nile River, one that you can show the entire thing from its source in Central Africa all the way to the Delta on the Mediterranean? Or how might the way you view international politics change if you could get a good, clear view that included both Havana and Washington, D.C. in the same shot? Astronaut Chris Hadfield is one of the few people who've been able to enjoy these views of Earth from 250 miles up on the International Space Station. He was commander of Expedition Number 34 in 2012 and 2013, and he shares what working in space has taught him in his memoir. It's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. Now, he's published his favorite photographs of Earth from the thousands of close-ups he took from the space station. They're featured in his newest book. It's called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Chris Hadfield, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. It is my pleasure, Rick. Thanks. So you go around the world in 92 minutes. How long? You were up in the space station for, what, five months or something like that? Yeah. If you do the math, it's like 2,400 times around or something like that. A lot lot around the world tours. That is amazing. What drove you to become an astronaut? I don't think drove is the right word. It's more like what pulled me to be an astronaut. And it was watching the first two people walk on the moon. I Mm. I was a kid. I watched Neil and Buzz on the surface of the moon, and that night walked outside right afterwards and looked up at the moon itself. And it sort of just clicked in my mind that, mm. that impossible things can happen. Mm. And they happen when they just barely can. And so it, I just decided that night, wow, impossible things happen. Okay, I want to do that. How, how do I do that? And then it just became a pull or a draw through um, the rest of my life, uh, just helping me make decisions what I was going to do next. And amazingly enough, flew in space three times. But you're Canadian, aren't you? Yeah. When, when, <laughs> when, good point. When Neil and Buzz uh, walked on the moon, there was no Canadian astronaut program, but there, no one had walked on the moon before that morning either. It, yeah. it was like permission. You know, That's it, pretty it was gutsy. Like, uh, I mean, Canada was, didn't was, even have a space program, and there you are, some <laughs> little kid, and you go, I can do that. Well, they were they were gutsy too. And it was, it was immensely invitational, Rick. You know, it was like... Uh, when people really turn their minds to something and where the technology just barely lets them, I love magnificent it. things can happen. I was in um, Norway when Neil and Buzz walked on the moon. I was just a little kid. I was just a teeny bopper. And what it occurred to me there was actually, I, I think in retrospect, pretty profound. It occurred to me this is not an American, exclusively American accomplishment. This is a human accomplishment. And I think a lot of Americans might forget that. Yeah, it was the original reality TV. It inspired... Hmm billions of people. It changed the thinking of billions of people simultaneously. There was never anything like it before. Yeah, it was a worldwide event. Speaking of billions of people, you produced a video that really went viral on YouTube. It's uh, David Bowie's Space Odyssey as an astronaut. That is such a beautiful production. How did you do that? I mean, did you get? Did you have to get permission to do that, both from NASA and from David Bowie or his uh, his gang? Well, it started just as a project with my son. My son said, "Hey, a lot of people." Uh, we were emailing back and forth, and he was helping me with social media. He said, "Dad, everybody's asking for space oddity. You got to record space oddity." And I was like, "Why would I do that? The astronaut dies at the end, and nobody covers Bowie." But he convinced me to do it. And I got him to rewrite the words so the astronaut lived. I made a just, it was just a father-son remote project. Like I was on a business trip somewhere and we were Uh emailing stuff back and forth. But when I recorded the vocal to it, just like a karaoke thing with uh, with Bowie in one ear, the vocal sounded far more evocative than I expected it to. It sounded much more interesting than I thought it would. 
and it just grew from there. And I got a couple of friends on earth to put the um, instrumentals underneath. And then my son weighed back in and said, it's gotta be video. So then one Saturday yeah. for an hour or two, I, I went around and made the video. And then the Canadian Space Agency uh, helped get all the video together, but they gave it to my son, who then edited it into that um, final product. And and it, I don't think it's billions yet, but it's no, it's but hundreds it's... of millions of people around the world have seen that video uh, through rebroadcast. It's amazing. You've had an impact with that video. I thought about it afterwards, you know, Rick, because when I did it, it was just, you know, I'm a musician. I recorded right. lots of music up there, but I think it tied art to the science of what's going on. I, uh, people have trouble mm. understanding a space station or the 200 scientific experiments on board. Huh. But when they saw the, the iconic uh, music, uh, sort of the almost um, prescient music and, and very well-known tune by David Bowie, suddenly in a new human place, yeah. in a, uh, kind of on a, on a oh, new yeah. place that we have built, it made it, I think, more real for people, or at least they understood it intuitively better. And it's just been amazing to see the reaction. I watched that that video several times. I was just so enamored with it. And then I watched it once just looking at the practicalities. I mean, when you're singing, you had yourself anchored to the um, the closest thing to terra firma up there, to the floor of the spaceship with your feet under kind of a bar. And I saw that, then you'd let go of that, and I thought, okay, Commander Hadfield's <laughs> going to take off. And then you sent the guitar going end over end all the way across and then you swam through the air and you grabbed it just before it would crash into the wall and then you'd mermaid yourself right out of sight into the next floor upstairs <laughs> that was so graceful it was balletic yeah your, your verbs are all wrong but they're very very expl- <laughs> explanatory um because you don't need to swim and you don't need to mermaid and and you don't float up you are weightless it's magic you're superman you know you can fly the things that look magical or, or like some sort of bizarre, mesmerizing special effect. That's just that's uh, normal life. Now that's, that's the way it is. That relates to something I, I learned by reading your new book, You Are Here. The whole notion of which way is up. You know, in my work, I'm always working with people's ethnocentricity. You know, yeah. the, the British don't drive on the wrong side of the road. You're just looking at it right. from an American point of view. They drive on the other sure. side of the road, right? Now, you've got something that's related to that, but it's even more fundamental. It's that what is really up and what is really down, and you challenge people to enjoy this photograph that looks upside down to us and resisting the impulse to turn it over. We want the world to look like a two-dimensional, north-up, clearly defined collection where each country is a different color. Right. That, that's how everybody sees the world for whatever reason. And, of course, it doesn't look anything like that. <laughs> and, and it's always orthogonal. You're always looking at, uh, when you look at a piece of paper, it's a straight-on view. But when you're actually looking at the ball of the earth itself, almost yeah. everything is on the oblique. It, it's at an angle. And so things are distorted. And, and north is never up. But I would send a picture to the ground, and immediately there'd be this hubbub on uh, on Twitter of saying, "Well, you you, you got the picture sideways," <laughs> as if uh, as if I was completely in the wrong, and it just made me laugh every time. This is travel with Rick Steves, and we're we're traveling beyond orthogonality, and we're talking to Commander Chris Hadfield, who's spent, well, how many times you went around the world? Uh, two thousand three hundred and thirty-six times in a hundred and forty-six days. All, all told, uh, two thousand five hundred and ninety-three, I think, over the three space flights. <laughs> oh, you show off! I haven't even been around the world <laughs> once, and you do it in you do it in ninety what ninety-two minutes. Now, ninety-two do, minutes. Do you ever think that five hundred years ago, the five hundredth anniversary of Magellan sailing around the planet is coming up in just a few years? You make sixteen round trips in one day. Magellan spent a life, he died halfway through and it was still a success, you know. Yeah, some of his crew made it the whole way. Yeah, you think about that actually, Rick, all the time. You look down 
as you come across the Sahara, if you look right, you can see all the way down to the Great Rift and, and Lake Victoria. And if you look left, you can see all the way to Cairo and the Mediterranean. Mm. You can see the whole length of the Nile mm. just by sweeping your head left and right. <laughs> and when you think of the thousands of years of history along that river and the explorers and trying to find the source of the Nile and the Blue Nile and all that, and you you just move your chin and, and it's right there. And, yeah. and you cross the Atlantic in just, just a few minutes. And the all-pervasive feeling of the historic struggles that have allowed us to understand mm. our planet, they're right with you the whole time. You really see a global perspective, but with a huge respect for the history that got us where we are. You talk about just how your perspective changes, you know, how, how small we are, but, but also just the slice in time, too, to kind of appreciate geological time as well as uh, how little we are in the big scheme of things. The geology of the world... It, you know, we live in the little pockets of cities, and mm -hmm. and almost everybody lives in a city. So you forget the vast swaths of the world mm -hmm. that are are harder to live in, but that are mostly exposed rock or exposed sand or, or someplace it's really hard to build a septic system in a house. Yeah, and really. but those ones are the ones you're constantly looking at when you're in a spaceship. You see the huge barren swept rock that is on the edge of, of say, the Sahara or mm -hmm. by the Gobi Desert as you're coming down out of the Himalayas or the empty quarter down on the on the peninsula. It's it's vast and it's surreal looking at when the old the sculpture is time and wind mm. and an immense dryness has turned it into shapes that are that are otherworldly. And that's most of what you see of the world is, is the nature of it. And only occasionally do you see a, a yeah. pocket of, uh, of a bunch of people living oh, together. Oh, man. And to, just to think of it as the sculpture is nature, not Michelangelo, but nature. <laughs> this <laughs> oh, is Travel so with beautiful. Rick Steves. We're talking with Commander Chris Hadfield. His new book is You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. And it's a wonderful collection of photographs that Chris has taken uh, while he was up on the International Space Station. And Chris, you're talking about the, the sweep of things. I, I love the way you commented and you, you proved it with a photograph, a beautiful photograph, that you can see Havana in Cuba and Washington, D.C. at the same time from, what are you, 250 miles up in the air? Sometimes you get really enamored with something that's straight below you. But the beauty of the space station is we built this huge, big, bulging blister of a window. And so it's got a, a great big window that faces square down to the earth, earth like a glass-bottom boat. But it's got windows all around the side. And you need to remind yourself to raise your eyes to the horizon because yeah. that's when suddenly you can see from Havana all the way to D.C. or mm -hmm. or you see from the Yucatan all the way up the coast. You can follow the, the San Andreas Fault its whole length just by tracing it with your eye mm -hmm. as you see so much of the world in just a careless glance. Chris, in your book you talked as a photographer about kind of getting all excited. The weather's going to be good and, and we're going to see the Nile way up at its source or are we going to check out Ayers Rock in, in Australia. If we get a glimpse of it, the weather's good, we're in the right track. And then you're going at 17,000 miles an hour, right? So if, if you don't yeah. get it right, not only do you have to go around the world again, but you have to wait for the weather and the right trajectory and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it must have been really fun for you to be aware of what's coming up and anticipating with your camera, but then realizing if you blink, you miss it. Uh, what's it like yeah, going 17,000 miles an hour? I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have a look at our ground track for the day. I'd look at where the 16 orbits, because the world turns underneath you. So every time you come around, it's, it's a new part of the world. Mm -hmm. And I would look and see, oh, today we're going right smack dab over top of whatever, the Panama Canal. Everyone wants to get a picture of the Panama Canal on a sunny day because it's almost always cloudy somewhere there. 
And so I would wait and I'd come around and I'd set my alarm on my wristwatch. And so somewhere about Hawaii, you'd, you'd go ripping over to the window and you'd get the camera, you'd be looking and you'd come down crossing um, Central America and you look ahead and you go, ugh. It's cloudy again. And, and then so you'd wait another week. But we've been living on the space station for um, 14 years. And the beauty of being up there for months and months at a time is you can say, oh, I didn't get it today, but I'll get it next month when, <laughs> when, when things line up right. Chris, when you were taking this beautiful photographs that fill your book, who owns these photographs? Does NASA just let you take the f- photographs and do with them what you like? What kind of legalities we, we all, are there? We all own those photographs. They, they belong to everybody. And th- that's, in fact, my wife and my profit from the book all goes to, uh, to charity because those pictures belong to everybody. Is that because you're a nice guy or is that because no, that's no. the re- requirement? Uh, I, no, I was a government employee using government equipment on government okay. time. But in truth, they ought to belong to everybody. Imagine if, you know, those pictures that the guys on the way back from the moon where they saw the whole globe yeah. for the first time. That's not a personal photo. That's a photo for every person oh, that exists. I like and, this book And even there's more. no difference. I just suddenly <laughs> like this book even more. This is beautiful. <laughs> now, the title of your other book is The Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And then the subtitle is what going to space taught me about ingenuity, determination, and being prepared for anything. Of course, you can look out that beautiful window and enjoy the view and ponder the world, but this other book deals with something even broader. Talk about the value of going to space from just being back on Earth and and better understanding life. In order to do something as complex and as challenging and as right on the edge of, of our capability, but also as dangerous as flying in space, You can't just do that using regular ideas and regular behaviors and regular ways of dealing with stuff. You kind of need to exaggerate and change how you do things. I observed over the 20 years, especially speaking in schools and to groups over those 20 years, I observed that the things that we have had to learn how to change have practical application for everybody. How do you separate danger and fear? How do you prepare for something that is one chance only and optimize your chances of success. How do you do all that stuff? And so the purpose of that book was really to be useful, to try and tell some space stories, but use them really to let people maybe pick out some behaviors or ideas for themselves that might help them then face life on Earth more successfully. Wow. So it it occurs to me, this is a travel show on the radio, and we're talking to one of the ultimate travelers, a man who's uh, lived in the space station, And just like travel on Earth gives you different perspective, traveling over Earth gives you even more of a different perspective. And then when you get back down into the rest of your life, you've got skills that you learn from that travel that can help you live better. I think it gives you not just the visual perspective, but visual perspective is important, of course. I think it helps you appreciate the the finer points of everything that you look at, but also more of a, a temporal perspective, a perspective of time, a, a perspective of distance, uh, maybe an increased feeling of contentment. And oddly enough, Rick, to go around the world a hundred times, it increases your optimism. You see the world for what it truly is, the immensity of it and the age of it and the patience of it and, mm-hmm. and the inherent beauty of it. And it pulls away your focus from the, the little nitnoy day-to-day stuff that's going on in your household, on your mm-hmm. street or in your your little town or whatever, which of course is important, but it's often blown way out of importance. And travel um, helps, I think, settle things into their proper settings. And and the amount of travel that that we do on the space station, suddenly you see the whole world that way as as one place with all of us uh, together on it. And you come back with a great sense of calm 
and optimism about the future of the whole thing together. You see things in a more true perspective. In an honest perspective, not as distorted by a television camera or, a, or an excited reporter right. or, or a transient impression of it. And that was really the motivation in my second book. Yeah, I took 45,000 pictures mm -hmm. and I, tr I tried to choose the 190 that just showed the world without telling people what to think. Just say, this is actually how varied and interesting and magnificent and mm. ugly and beautiful and, and complete our world is. And think about it. And where you are is just a part of that one long joint continuum. Again, we've been talking with Commander Chris Hadfield. His book is An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And his new book is You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes, an amazing collection of photographs from the International Space Station. Chris Hadfield, thanks so much for joining us, and happy travels. Same to you, Rick. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com. 